back to Matthew 12. Uh, This Lord's Day, our text will overlap last week. Matthew 12 will be focusing on 35 through 45. Matthew 12, 35 through 45. Before we read, I want to take just a second to remind us how we've got here in chapter 12. Read this passage and then pray. Jesus, at the beginning of this, or not at the beginning of this chapter, but at 22, uh, finds himself in the presence of a demon oppressed man. And this oppression has caused the man to be blind and mute. Uh, The crowds have stirred up by seeing Jesus heal this man to to exercise his power over the demon and then cause the man to see and speak. The scribes and the Pharisees are present, and as we've known through the last couple chapters, their hatred for Christ is stirring up, and it overflows In their response, after the crowds ask out loud, is this the son of David? And their response is, I don't think so. He exercises his power. He is is, uh, healing and driving out demons, not by the power of God, but by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Satan himself. So they respond to the response of the crowd, and then Jesus responds to them. And he undercuts their argument by simple logic and makes the statement, Any house divided against itself cannot stand. So if I am casting out Satan's demons by the power of Satan, it is illogical to think that his his, uh, house or his kingdom can stand. A house divided against itself cannot. But then Jesus goes theological after logical, And make some remarkable statements in verses 26, I'm sorry, 27 through 32. And just pointing out, he turns it on its head and says, No, I do these things not by the spirit of Beelzebul, but by the spirit of God. And if that be, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he uses a parable to illustrate the reverse about his relationship with Satan, reverse of what has been spread as lies by the Pharisees, and says that not is he using the power of Satan, but he is binding Satan and plundering his house, his kingdom. And then, as we saw last week, he makes the remarkable statement, you're either with me or against me. You'll either scatter, or you're either gathering with me or scattering. You are with me or my enemy. And then he warns them that they've crossed a line that they could not return from, the unpardonable sin. And we finished last week with Jesus making a declaration and calling them to a calling them to the carpet of saying, Make up your minds. Am I good or am I evil? 
Are the miracles that I do good and therefore I am good? Or are they bad and therefore I am bad? And he calls them to answer him. But then he ends in verse 34 reminding himself perhaps or the crowd, telling them of the truth that comes out of verse 34. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good? How can you answer that question? Am I good? When you yourselves are evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that brings us to where we are today as we look at verse 35 and beyond. Let's, let's read it together and then pray. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. And they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept empty and put in order then it the unclean spirit goes and brings forth with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation verse 46 While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Would you bow with me? Lord of heaven and of earth, we call upon your power. The power that saves, that raises the dead, that builds a new kingdom, that does what no one else could do. For Christ's sake, we pray this. 
Amen. So as we look at this section, there are two themes that are really starting to take shape. Two themes that are being built up that will take us all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I touched on one last week. I touched on it the week before and the week before that. And the the first one that we keep bringing up is, who is Jesus? That's the question that keeps coming up. And that's also the thing that he keeps teaching. And again... Read on, read through verse or chapter 16, and you get to the climax where Christ himself asks the question, who do they say I am? And then turns it upon his disciples, but who do you say that I am? This is the great theme of Matthew. That G, like Matthew did not mince words in verse 1, chapter 1. Jesus Christ, the son of David... The son of Abraham. Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. But see, you have to understand, Matthew is writing from a perspective of a Jew to an audience that is Jewish. And he has an intent to convince the Jew that Christ is the Messiah because... The next great theme that happens, that comes forth in Matthew, why Matthew would write such a Jewish uh, gospel to a Jewish audience is because at the point of Matthew writing this, the Jews as a nation have rejected their Messiah. And this is the second great theme that runs throughout this gospel. Christ is the king of the Jews. And the Jews will crucify their king. Now, this isn't going to be the topic of the sermon today because if you remember last week I said when we read when we read or study or teach through a passage of scripture there is always an underlying theme or river running through that passes from Genesis to Revelation and gets caught up and informs these things that are happening within the text. Now, the thing that we will look at today, I will, it's, this, it's this, the title of the sermon, The Heart of the Matter. And if you're picking it up, heart has already been mentioned in our text. And the underlying theme that's taking place is what is going on within not just the Jew, but with man himself. The inner man. But before we look there, and before we think through this, I do want to, I want to encourage you, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, and I probably haven't said this enough, for you to be reading the Gospel of Matthew. It would be very helpful for you to read through the Gospel of Matthew, um, informed with those themes. Right, not just reading it to read it. One thing I want you to to take away as as your pastor is how to study your Bible, and you must study your Bible as a book, which is an odd thing to say. 
Because the Bible is literature. And you and, there, and some could hear that and might take offense, but we have to understand all literature is is writing to communicate. Writing to inform. God, the creator of all, has written a book. And he has not written it in a way that is disconnected from all other literature. Actually, all other literature finds its home and place out of the truth of what God has said. And so when we think themes or plot or points, we understand that God is telling a story and every place in Scripture is telling a story from the same story from a different perspective. So take these themes that I've given you. Jesus is the king of the Jews, and the Jews have killed their king and rejected him. So go and read Matthew in that light. Now, to the heart of the matter. The condition of the inner man. As we walk through this morning, I want to show you, I want to take you to three different points. Number one being the universal truth about mankind that we can find in verse 35 through 37. The universal truth about mankind. And if I give you the other points, they really won't make sense until we go through that first one. So let's start there. Verse 35, 36, and 37. Look at it closely. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So I have three universal truths about mankind. And guess what? We all fit in these, as well does every single human being that's ever lived. The first universal truth we see from Christ is that there has been created one person or one man. All of us and all people who have ever lived are identical. We all have the same anatomy. We all grow the same way. We all have a brain. We all have functioning lungs. We all have a heart. We all have a soul. There is one person. All come from Adam. But yet Jesus says the universal truth that there are two conditions of all people. One or two conditions of all people. And what does the text say? You are either good or evil. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. He, he paints a picture of the person being like a factory who builds and makes a product within them and stores it up. And as that person lives, that product, that factory, that, that product that, that the factory makes, or the tree perhaps that lives inside that brings forth fruit, ever now and again as they live, shares the product, the, the, the fruit that is being made and built up within them. The person has a storehouse of treasure 
The good person stores up good treasure, and out from them comes good fruit. The evil person stores and makes up evil treasure, and from him comes evil. The condition of the product or the fruit reveals the condition of the operation. We were talking, I don't remember who it was, we were talking about uh, one Wednesday night during our uh, coffee time about, uh, well, it was, uh, we were talking about coffee pots, where they were you know, made in America or China and looking up reviews and this and that. And when I remember review uh, trying to f- pick out a TV years ago, which one to get, reading reviews. Should I get a Sony? It's a little bit more expensive. Or should I get this new brand that I've seen come out? TCL. Isn't that what it is? TCL. And you look at the reviews, and what you ter- what you tend to find out was that Sony produced a better product. They were more consistent over time. TCL, it was like, you get a good one here, you get a bad one there. What does that tell you? What does the product, the quality of the product, tell you about the quality of the company, the factory? Good or bad. In the same way, you and I and every person can be examined by the product, the fruit that we show that comes forth from our life. Good or evil. You will be one or the other. There are only two options, only two conditions, good or evil. Many people want to make Christianity as the religion of gray area. But the reality is, it is so black and white. Good or evil, with me or against me, gather with me or scatter. We live in a time where Christianity has become so soft and pliable that the gray area tends to exist. And it becomes so gray and so tender that the exception then becomes the rule. Phrases like we hear all the time of a good old boy who's never stepped foot in a church But he honors his word, and we say, that's a good man. How are we defining good? How do we define evil? It's black and white. The the standard is set. And where is the standard of good and evil? It is in the word of God. Which gets us to the second universal truth about mankind, verse 36 I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account. All mankind is heading for judgment. All people everywhere, from all time, will be judged by God. Humanly speaking, it's like a QA manager. who will examine 
Not just like we do Sony. Oh, they've got a 4.8. We'll give them a chance. The judgment of God will look for perfection. 5.0. And it will look at, and God and his judgment will look over every product that has come forth. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You will be examined and it will be marked good or evil. But that's not the scariest part. After being marked good or evil on the day of judgment, the verdict will be rendered and you will be it, the, it will come down as either justified or condemned. Guiltless or guilty. You know, we 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 say or make statements like all people everywhere from all time will be judged by God. We're a people that uses hyperbole a lot, right? We tell our spouse, you always say that to me. And in reality, it's not true. We don't always act that way. Or our, our kids say, you always are mean to me, mom, dad. But it's never always the case, right? But the truth about mankind is not hyperbole. All people everywhere from all time, for every careless word, will be judged by God. None will escape. None will be excused. Nothing can be hid. We know that the word of God is living and active, sharper than two, any two-edged sword. But we must understand that that sword comes and pierces that nothing can hide from the judgment of God. It pierces between soul and spirit and bone and marrow. And no one can hide. And everyone be, will be left naked before God. Accounted for every piece of product or fruit that comes out during their lives. But perhaps the, mo the worst underestimation of that statement is of the judge, actually. We will be judged by God. By God is the scariest part of that sentence. How does the writer of Hebrews say it? It is a scary thing to fall into the hands of a living God. A righteous and just judge who will by no means, no means, clear the guilty. Which brings us to our third truth about all mankind. And that's that natural condition of every single one. While Jesus explains to us here that there are two conditions, the Bible communicates and reinforces from beginning to end that every man, woman, and child are naturally in the same condition. When I say naturally, I mean by birth, okay? 
Every man, woman, child are naturally in the same condition. And it is one of those two. And it's evil. You remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Paul echoes Jesus and the Psalms when he says, no one does good. And then he follows that up and says, the whole world, the whole world will be held accountable to God. From that condition, from the condition we are born in, we are without hope. There is nothing we can do in our natural condition to justify ourselves before God. None is righteous. No, not one. And when we put these things together... And we know Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So what do you get when you combine the natural condition of man with the righteous judgment of God? The wrath of God. When the natural condition of man meets the righteous judgment of God, the wrath and anger of God is inevitable. These are the three things that are universal for mankind. And Jesus goes and helps us out a little bit. Doesn't really. Let me back up. Let's examine point two, the evil person. Let's take for a minute and understand the condition. Man has a defective heart, as we would say. We see this. We see, we see this condition in this section, beginning in verse 34. When Jesus, looks, when Jesus looks to the Pharisees and says, you brood of vipers, you seed of Satan, how can you speak good when you are evil? What about, what about the, the defectiveness of heart? Where's the evil coming from? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Where does Jesus pinpoint the problem? The abundance of the heart. How does Jeremiah diagnose the heart? It's deceitful above all things. Desperately sick, he says. And then the other major prophet, Ezekiel, he, he, he speaks the words of God and God says, I must give them a new heart. In order that they might obey me. The heart is the problem. But what we must understand when we use the word heart. We're just speaking about 
who you truly are. The inner person. There's no, we're, we're not distinguishing between your heart and your mind. Or your will and your heart. But when the scriptures speak of heart, they mean of that which is internal. Of who you truly are. But as someone has a heart defect, what comes with that? Symptoms. Symptoms come when there's a heart problem. When the heart is broken. When the inner man is defected by sin. It affects more than just our heart. That's why when a factory is ran and known to being a poor factory, it tends to spread not just from the core of those who operate it, but then it moves into the other areas within the factory, only causing more failed product. And so when the heart or the inner person is defected, it affects, well, as we'll see next or in the next chapter, the ears and the eyes. Flip over to chapter 13, verse 14 and 15. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, so this is Jesus answering the disciples of why he speaks in parables. We'll examine this a lot closer. But I just want you to see the connection between eyes and ears and heart. You will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For these people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would hear them. Charles Wesley got it right. But in a positive form, when speaking about the redemptive work of God on a defective, sinful nature, he says, Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. All symptoms. Of a sinful heart, deaf, dumb, blind, and lame. We see it in this passage, and we see it in in the continuation of Israel's rejection of Jesus. Look back at chapter 12 when we get to verse 38. We we see the effect of their deafness and blindness. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We wish to see a sign from you. Forget the healing of the demon-oppressed man. Forget the making the lame man to walk. We need to see a sign from you. They demand a sign. Why? Because they're blind. And their hearts don't even understand. They want to see something. Yet they're blind. If you read the Gospel of John, I believe chapter 5, no, chapter 6, 
It's not just the Pharisees or the scribes, but the Jewish crowd says to him, says to Jesus, quote, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What sign do you do that we might see and believe you? What is this? What is that? You put those two things together. Show us so we can believe. You mix it up and what pops out is unbelief. Unbelief is the worst effect of sin on the human heart. And not only that, it manifests itself as the most rotten fruit produced in your evil heart factory. True unbelief, biblical unbelief. We, we, always, we always say, we try to define what true belief is, what biblical belief is, but we also have to define what true unbelief is. True biblical unbelief is not a disbelief in God. Like someone might not believe in a, man, a big man in a red coat. True unbelief is not believing God. Do we understand the difference? It's not, I don't believe in his existence. It's, I don't believe him. That's true unbelief. We don't want to have an environment, a culture, a church that says this is the opposite side of that. That getting saved, which to me that phrase is not helpful at all. Getting saved has become more about knowledge, acknowledging a fact about Jesus, not actually believing Jesus. Whether it's, whether it's what Jesus says about him or about you or about how to live in him. We can say we believe in Jesus, but when Jesus says you should pluck out your eye to keep you from sinning, do you believe that sin is that bad? Do you believe what Jesus thinks about sin, your own sin? Do you believe that even in your sin, he is your atonement, your hope, because he died for your sin and rose from the dead? If you look at the end of this, we won't, this is the only time we'll touch 46 through 50 today. The end of uh, when the whole thing when they say, Jesus, your mother and brother's here. And he says, uh, no, 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 no. These are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Luke s- says it a little bit different. And he says, my mother, my brothers, my sisters are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's belief. Who hear the word of God and do it. 
That simply might mean faith. And ultimately, that's what belief is. Trusting. And biblical unbelief is not trusting. So those are the symptoms. With the greatest being unbelief. But there's one more thing about the evil person I want to touch on quickly. Coming actually from what's happening in this section. Well, in the, in the parable that's given in 43 through 45. With the evil person, they, they are hopeless in their self-healing. They're hopeless in their self-healing. And this is the problem the Pharisees keep running into. And this is the problem that all unbelieving religious people run into. Did you hear what I just said? This is the problem that all religious unbelieving people run into. Believing, unbelieving religious people. You catching my drift? They're, they're hopeless in their self. Well, cleaning, self-cleaning is probably the best way to put it with this parable. This parable has always been strange to me, but it made made much sense to more sense to me these last couple weeks. Look at it, 43. This is when the evil spirit leaves a person and then it goes through waterless places seeking rest. What it, it just means it it goes through a a, a dry land, like we would walk through a desert. It's going through a place that it does not want to be. It wants to be in a person. The unclean spirit, the evil, wants to dwell within a person. So he leaves this. He leaves the person, which we're going to call a house. Okay, verse forty-four. Then it says, "The evil spirit, I will return to my house." He doesn't like not being in the person. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, the evil, the, uh, the unclean spirit, and finds the house, that would be the person, empty, swept, and put in order. Okay, that's the first key to this parable. The condition of the person. In order. Clean. Tidy. Religious, maybe. Then it goes after finding this condition and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. Here's the, th the final key to this parable. And the last state or the final state of that person is worse than before. So will it be with this evil generation. I am convinced that he's speaking of the nation of Israel as a whole in their rejection of him. Even, even when the human heart is confronted by its own sin and failure, the sinful, evil person will go into self-cleaning mode. Or we might call it self-righteousness. To make itself better. Three ways this could happen. Three sentences. Sometimes it's through self-justification. We want to make ourselves feel better like we are justified by asking such question of, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Self-justification. Or sometimes we might try to justify ourselves through law-keeping or attempting to be good. 
And simultaneously, usually when people strive for righteousness through law-keeping and trying to be good, they tend to condemn others. And the third is sometimes just straight denial of the truth. And that's what they're doing here in, in testing Jesus. I believe it's in Luke in this uh, parallel passage where it says they ask Jesus for a sign in order to test him. Why? Because they want to distort the truth. They don't want him to be the Messiah. And so what would that look like? You walk into your house and you've, you just, you've not been cleaning it. And you decide at that moment, you know what? This is the new state of clean. Redetermined, reoriented truth for the sake of self-righteousness. This is the hopelessness of self-healing, self-cleaning, self-righteousness. But the truth becomes evident in verse 45 of that. When the evil that you think you've swept out comes back, it comes back eightfold. And every attempt to justify yourself, to cleanse yourself, to make yourself righteous will only result in more wickedness within you. The only hope, and this is as we go to the final point, the only hope, therefore, is to have someone come from the outside in. The cure. The cure is Christ. And it's so weird that they ask this question as if if they wanted the remedy. Like, show us a sign. Give us a sign that you are actually doing the work of the Spirit of God. But the irony is, is that, and Jesus already said it, no good can come from your lips. Therefore, even your request to see a sign is based out of the evilness of your heart. But the reality is, he gave them the cure. He, he, he says, you know, verse 39. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is his point? His point is resurrection. Resurrection. We are, we are people who stand on Christ and Him crucified. And that is what we preach. But we must understand that the resurrection means new creation. New life. The only way to cure the defective heart, the natural condition of fallen man, is resurrection. The resurrection is God doing a new thing. That's why we call it a new creation. It's not just about the person, but it's about God himself 
doing a new work in of all of creation. The resurrection is about bringing the beginning of the end of this age, but also the beginning of the age that will never end. Now, that, was a lot, that was confusing. But I want to say it again. The resurrection is the beginning of the end of this age. But it is the beginning of the age that never ends. Because it is a new creation. You have Adam who goes into the garden and falls and dies. But then you have the Son of Man who comes and dies for the sake of others, but yet rises from the dead. That is a new world that did not exist before the moment Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And in Him, by faith, you are joined in Him as a new creation, a new creature. Why do you think... Why do you... The Sabbath day is to be kept holy. Why did God not raise His Son on the holy day, the Sabbath day? Because Sunday is the first day of the week. Day one of creation. And so when Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, God said, I am doing this again. Today is the first day of not of the old creation, but of the new creation. And then what do we look forward to in this new creation? The Sabbath day. The sixth day. Because what is that? The eternal rest of God. In Christ, we are longing and going for the final Sabbath. Where we spend eternity in rest with God. He says it in Hebrews. There still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And he speaks about us com coming into his presence forever and ever. This is the only hope for all people. That we believe in him who has been raised from the dead. Who is recreating all of the cosmos Heaven and earth will be thrown away and the new heavens and the new earth will come. And only through him who has conquered sin and death. Think about Jonah for just a second. He's tossed into the sea by the crew. He gives himself, right? Jonah said, throw me in. I have sinned. And the moment... He touches the water, the winds and the seas, and their anger cease as Jonah plummets into the depths and dwells there within the fish for three days. And then as he comes and is raised from the dead, so to say, he go and preaches good news to the Ninevites, gives himself Three days. But the final thing, and we'll stop here. 
The final thing about the cure, which is Christ. Of course he's greater than Jonah. Why did Jonah give himself up and to be thrown into the ocean, to the sea? Because he had sinned. Christ is the greater Jonah. For he threw himself into the depths, not because he sinned, but because he took on our sin. And he laid in the depths for three days and comes out resurrected. And through his spirit and his body, the church, the gospel, the power of God for salvation, for new creation goes forth to the end of the earth. And let us not be standing in front of the Ninevites whom repented at a fallen man's message. Let us not stand before them and say, we heard the good news preached from the Son of God and did not repent. Do not stand before them. Because standing behind them will be the great judge. And as he says, the the generation in the wilderness... He says to us today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What kept them from God's rest? Unbelief. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient. So we see that they who are unable to enter because of unbelief. But so two things. Do not harden your heart at the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For he has lived the life that you have failed to live before God. In you producing bad fruit all of your life, Christ's good fruit all of his life is ready to trade. And him take your bad and give you his good. For he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And might we just end on a positive note. The power of the gospel that you believe turns a bad factory into a good one. Turns an unbelieving heart into a believing heart. It gives blind eyes to see. It gives the lame feet to walk. It gives life to those who are dead in their sin. The power of God and the gospel of God for salvation to all who believe. That is a power that brings about resurrection, new creation. And that is the power that is needed to turn an unbelieving heart into a believing heart. 
and unseen, unseen eyes to seeing eyes. And praise be to God with me this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The power of God and the gospel of God. Amen. Father, pierce our hearts over and over. Show us the work, the power, the force needed to take a dead man and make him alive, to take an unbelieving heart and give it faith, to turn a man from evil to good. Show us the, the depths that which you've loved us, that you sent your own son, that he bore not just sin, but the wrath that is, that is needed to, to bring forth justice to you, a holy and good God. Pierce our hearts that we might mourn our own sin, the sin of our families, the sin of our country, the sin of mankind. But Father, in that, show us the true hope that you've given us in Christ, that as we cry, we may laugh with joy. As we, are, as we feel uh, mournful at our own sin, we'll know that we have eternal hope in Christ. And that by your Spirit, we have been made new. And we've been called to march and to fight and to plunder. And the power of your spirit and the power of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand together and sing in our hymnals. Page 180. Page 180, and can it be?